I'd, uh, I'd like to introduce you to three of the lesser-known personalities of the New Testament this morning. I'd like you to meet three people, all of whom are mentioned there in the letter of 3 John, none of whom are probably all that well-known from the Bible. But I want to introduce you to them this morning precisely because of something which 3 John says. So you have a look down with me at verse 11 that was just read for us. Verse 11. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Now it's precisely because of what that sentence says that I'd like to introduce you to these three men. Because you see, as we meet them, we will discover from them some good things to imitate. And some not so good things to not imitate. Abraham Lincoln once said that he never met a person he didn't learn something from, even if it sometimes was something not to do. Well, that's going to be the case with these three men. In each case, we're going to learn something from them, although in one case, it's going to be what not to do. But here we go. In order of appearance, let me first introduce to you a fellow named Gaius. And right from the start, what's really obvious about him is that he is a close friend to the Apostle John. John says it three times. Verse 1. The elder, to my dear friend, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Verse 2. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Verse 5. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers. There's clearly a lot of affection in this letter, isn't there? as John writes to this particularly close friend, Gaius. He's a precious brother. All the more precious because if there's one word that John seems to use to describe him, it's the word faithful. He says it twice. first one's in verse 3. gave me great joy to have some of the brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. It's a lovely description there, isn't it? Gaius is faithful to the truth. In other words, he's hanging in there to the truth about Jesus. In fact, in verse 4 there, John uses the phrase that we thought about last Sunday in the letter of 2 John, that phrase of walking in the truth, that long-distance commitment to sticking with the truth for the long haul, that slow and steady step-by-step by step, sticking close with the teachings of Christ. It's not necessarily flash, it's not necessarily showy, but it's a determination to hang in there with the truth and be loyal to Jesus no matter what. That's guys. And he is a great encouragement to John. But it's not just faithfulness to the truth, it's also faithfulness to loving other Christians. And this is what sort of takes us to the heart of the letter. Verse 5, dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Got the picture? John is writing to Gaius commending him for his support of other Christians who have gone out spreading the news about Jesus. 
Verse 7 describes these people as going out for the sake of the name. That's the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, these are people who presumably have left behind their jobs and they're out on the road for the sake of telling others and teaching others about Jesus. They are itinerant preachers, itinerant evangelists, itinerant missionaries, if you want to use that word, travelling from town to town. And even though Gaius has never met them before in his life, verse 5 says they're strangers to him, he is still being generous in opening his house, showing hospitality, providing them with a bed, meals. In fact, nestled in there at verse 8, there's a lovely little word of encouragement to all of us about this. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Now the actual word used in that sentence is a word fellow worker, co-worker. It's a word that implies a standing of equal value and equal importance. In other words, John is saying that by caring and, su and supporting these missionaries, if you want to use that word, Gaius, is being described as equally important to the cause of the gospel as the itinerant teachers and, and missionaries themselves. They are fellow workers together for the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. That's a perspective that really ought to spur us on in our support of gospel ministries, I think. Because, you see, not all of us can go to Africa like the Lucans have. Not all, of, not all of us can go to Cambodia with the Parkers. Not all of us can go to Kyrgyz, uh, sorry, with the Applebee's. No, not everyone can go to the Kyrgyzstan with the Parkers. Mind you, perhaps, some, perhaps more of us could than actually do. But for some of us, there's really real issues why we can't. We'd struggle with that. We'd struggle with the change. We'd struggle with the culture. We'd struggle with the languages. For us to go would not necessarily be all that productive or effective. But when we support people who do go, be it through prayer or money or, or letters or having them in our homes when they're home on leave, when we work together with them, in the words of John, we are co-workers of equal value for the sake of the name. At our place, we have photos on our fridge of uh, gospel workers. My guess is lots of us here do. In one sense, there ought to be another photo on the fridge as well. In one sense, there ought to be a photo of everyone else who's got a photo on their fridge. Because it's a team ministry. And we're being reminded very much of that here in what John is writing to Gaius. He's being described as a fellow worker through his hospitality. Because by opening his home, he's a wonderful brother helping to promote the name of Jesus. And John says, imitate what is good. Well, Gaius has got some good things that we should be that, that we could learn from. That would be good for us to imitate. Mind you, not everyone in three John is that impressive. Which brings me to the second person I'd like to introduce you to, a fellow named Diotrephes. He pops up in verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. Now, amongst the pages of the New Testament, I don't think that there's much worse than could be said of you than what John says of Diotrephes in that sentence. After all of Jesus' teaching about how we as followers of him ought to be servants of each other, 
how we've got all the teaching about how in the kingdom of heaven the last will be first and the first will be last. How even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And here's Diotrephes. He loves to be first. Can you imagine one of the apostles of Christ putting that in writing about you? Indeed, it doesn't even end with that one damning statement. John now goes on to describe how Diotrephes is about as opposite to Gaius as you can get. Because for starters, rather than being faithful to the truth, he's very careless with the truth, even the truth about the Apostle John. Verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Now that phrase, gossiping maliciously, it, it effectively means incoherent babbling. In other words, Diotrephes is lying through his teeth. He's making up stuff. He's running a smear campaign against the Apostle John. And why is he doing that? The guy loves to be first. He doesn't want to share the limelight with anyone, even an apostle. He wants to focus squarely on himself and so he's prepared to even make up stories about people so as to make him look good. doesn't even end there because he is also uncaring to the brothers. Verse 10. If I come, I call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us, not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who do so and puts them out of the church. This guy really is the exact opposite of Gaius. His insatiable desire to be first has meant that he's not only lying about people, he's refusing other gospel workers from being welcomed by the church. And John is writing to say, don't be like that. Do not imitate what is evil. Don't love to be first. Now, friends, can I gently ask whether this is something we need to hear this morning? And look, I'm sure we're much more subtle at it, and we might be very much outwardly nicer about it, but could there be sort of a part of diatrophies in us all? So how committed are you to being here on a Sunday morning? Now, I know in one sense I'm preaching to converted because you are here. But honestly, what little, how little a thing does it take for you to skip being here? Or how little a thing does it take to perhaps shoot through early over morning tea and not bother meeting anyone else? To what extent will you only talk to your friends and the people that you enjoy being with over morning tea? What about the other church events? How do you decide what to go to and what not to go to? Do you work maybe on a best offer policy? And so if there's a church picnic on or some sort of other morning church event, but there's something else happening that you reckon is going to be a bit more fun, that's the thing you go for. What about your small group? How did you choose which small group to go to this year? Did you pick your small group on what was the most convenient night for you? Or which group had most of your friends at it? Or did you perhaps pick the group that could have used the most encouragement? Have you even picked to go to a small group in the first place? 
What about when the collection comes around? How much do you put in? Do you only ever put in as much so that you don't actually notice that you don't have it? Or do you ever put in so much that you're actually going to go without something during the week? Maybe even postpone buying something through the week. Friends, if we are only fitting a church family in and around our lifestyle so that we are never seriously inconvenienced by it, it's a bit like loving to be first, isn't it? In the end, if we're just doing what we want to do, and if something to do with church, say, conflicts with what we want to do, well, that's just tough for the church thing, that, that's a bit like loving to be first, isn't it? It's a bit like diotrophies. Friends, don't imitate what's evil, but what is good. And John clearly wants us to learn from diotrophies about what not to do. In fact, so disappointing and disheartening is the guy that it's almost as if John wants to get off him as quickly as possible and get onto someone a bit more positive. Enter Demetrius, the third person I'd like you to meet. Verse 12. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, details about Demetrius, they're pretty skimpy in the letter, aren't they? There's just that one sentence. Maybe he's the person hand-delivering this letter to Gaius. And so John is here urging Gaius to accept him warmly. Don't be intimidated by diatrophies. Accept Demetrius into your home. Whatever the case, Demetrius is clearly mentioned as the counterbalance of diatrophies. John is saying... Don't be put off by that lying gossip diatrophies. Don't imitate what is evil. Do what is good. Hey, be like Demetrius. He's well spoken of by everyone. And then you get that lovely little phrase in verse 12 that even the truth itself speaks well of him. In other words, Demetrius is such an outstanding individual that even forgetting what people say about him, even by the yardstick of God's own word, Demetrius's quality shines through. That when you read things in the Bible, you can actually see them in Demetrius. They're sort of mirror images of each other. Demetrius is what the Bible says. Wouldn't that be a delightful thing for someone to say about you? That's worth imitating. I remember once chatting to a Christian girl who'd started teaching at a, at a public school in Sydney. She was saying how tough it was, that the morale at the school was pretty low. Uh, to make things worse, the staff were actually quite unfriendly. No one much interested in helping her, too busy looking out for themselves, too busy gossiping about each other behind everyone else's back. All except this one teacher, who she reckons stood out a mile. Not just in his helpfulness, but that he wasn't nearly as crude as the others were. He wasn't nearly as negative as the others were. Bet he's a Christian, she thought. You ever thought that about someone who just so shines out and thinking, bet they're a Christian? Well, it turned out he was. It showed. I reckon that's the sort of person that Demetrius was. Well spoken of by everyone. Even the truth itself. He'd be a good one to imitate. So there you go. 
three of the lesser known personalities of the New Testament. Gaius, Diotrephes, Demetrius. Three men from which we can learn a few things, both in terms of what to do and what not to do. They really do flesh out what John says in verse 11. To not imitate what is evil, but what is good. But let me close by adding one more thing to the mix. Let me just return to Gaius for a moment and touch down on one last thing, which I reckon also comes out of the letter, especially when you sort of read between the lines and fit a few things together. Think about it. John is writing to Gaius to encourage and commend him for showing hospitality to visiting Christian brothers. Meanwhile, he's criticising Diotrephes, who's clearly an influential and powerful person in the church. And he criticises him for not welcoming brothers and putting out of the church those who do. But hang on, guys has been doing that. So putting two, to two, to two and two together, I reckon it's probably likely that Gaius is one of those who have been kicked out of the church. Which may well be why John is writing to him. So as to encourage him that even though he's been kicked out of the church, which is what Diotrephes has been doing to anyone who's been welcoming the brothers, even though that's happened to him, John wants Gaius to know that he hasn't done anything wrong. Which would sort of explain something back in verse 1. Because in verse 1, where it says, To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, that I in that sentence is really quite emphatic. It's almost as if John is saying, Look, others may be giving you a hard time for it, but I love, I love what, what you're doing in the truth. All of which I think lifts Gaius again off the page as a brother worth imitating. Because he is a brother determined to do the good, even when it has gotten him into trouble. Which is sort of a reflection of Jesus himself, isn't it? That's what Jesus did. Determination to do the good, even through the grief and the opposition that he faced, he never stopped walking in truth so as to ultimately serve us. He laid down his life for us. There's the ultimate one we should be imitating. A bloke I know pastors a church in Adelaide. And uh, I heard him speaking recently about a young Asian doctor from his church um, whose family are from Hong Kong. This bloke, uh, we'll call him Chris, that's not his name, but that's what we're going to call him. He grew up a Buddhist. But by going through Adelaide Uni and meeting Christians, by the time he graduated, he decided that the claims of Jesus could not be ignored and he became a Christian. That's when his problems start. Chris's parents back in Hong Kong heard about it. They were furious. They contacted him and told him in no uncertain terms that he could no longer consider himself their son. He was excluded from the family, written out of the inheritance, don't bother turning up at your sister's wedding. You have brought disgrace to our family. That's not where it ended. A few months later, Chris had a phone call from his brother-in-law, who'd flown into Adelaide from Hong Kong, wanted to meet. They met over lunch, during which his brother-in-law brought out a suitcase full of money. 
just like the movies. A million dollars. He said the family is tired of the disgrace that you have brought them. They want you back. And the money's yours. Just give up this Christianity. Chris looked at the money, shook his head, and refused. The brother-in-law brought out a checkbook, started filling one in. What's it going to take to make you change your mind? Chris shook his head, left the table. Evidently he's now living in motels and driving a rental car because he's thinking that if the family was prepared to spend that much money to change his mind, he's actually worried that the next step could be a little bit more physical. Now friends, for most of us, following Jesus is not that dramatic. Okay, we might get some ribbing at school. We might get a hard time at work. We might feel the odd one out occasionally at a family function or a work function. It's rarely as dramatic as it was for Chris. But for some people it is. Even here in Australia. And yet here is a brother prepared to walk in the truth and be loyal to Jesus even when it causes trouble and loss. Now I'm thinking that makes him a person like Gaius, which makes him a person like Jesus, which therefore makes him a person well worth imitating. Dear friends, don't imitate what's evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil, well, they haven't seen God.